Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, my regular co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, is absent from the studio, but I am joined by Martin Clocker of Sherpa Watches to tell us his story of how he has brought an iconic model back to the fore. Firstly, Martin, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Rob. Very nice that uh, I have the chance to appear here. So tell the audience where we met and how recently our friendship was forged. Oh, that was actually uh, quite surprising. So we met last weekend on the brilliant uh, watch show Finland in Helsinki, and uh, which is a really nice show. I can already recommend because they are nice people. And also there is Kari Vutilain, which is always uh, worth traveling anywhere. And um, a lot of enthusiasts. And we were introduced by Albert from Zeitwinkel. And well, we started talking and then suddenly I'm here <laughs> in the show. Quite a fortuitous timing, to be honest, because as I mentioned to you before we came on air, we've got a, a very busy recording schedule all the way up to the middle of July, but it just so happened both you and I had an hour or so spare on today, which is Friday, May 19th. So this episode's probably going to come out uh, a ways in the future, but I'm sure everything you say today will be just as relevant then. Tell us about your experience at the Watch Show Finland, because for me, it was the best event I've been to for years, not since the heydays of Salon QP, if I know a better event. How did you find it? So basically, I I appeared at the Watch Show Finland last year for the first time, and I had a completely different idea how Finns would be on a show or in general. But I was back then. I was surprised. They came directly to the booth, asked tons of questions, very curious, very knowledgeable, uh, very um, passionate about watches, and uh, wow, I was just blown away. So that's why I returned, and as you can imagine, I mean, um, yeah, it continued because they are just easygoing. Come to the booths, ask a lot of questions, no prejudice, no nothing like my brand that I have on my wrist is better than your watches that you present or something like that, which, honestly speaking, does happen in some other <laughs> events. Um, so yeah, I'm I was really, you know, pleased with the 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 run of events, and the other thing is the organizer Willi. He's working for uh, Sapaneva and uh, is really a nice guy, very passionate. And also the, the whole Sapaneva crew is really nice. And uh, so, yeah, it feels a bit like a family event, to be honest. I think the word that sticks out to me more than any when we're describing the clientele of that event was knowledgeable. That's the thing that really resonated with me, just how into the watchmaking game, how deeply into it these men and women that we met were. And it's interesting you sort of say that you had a, different perception of what the finish would be like in that environment as i did a few years ago before i'd ever worked in finland and i went out to do some training sessions with a team at asman kello and i was greeted with uh, a room full of blank faces and a very respectful but somewhat unnerving silence for the majority of my talk <laughs> <laughs> honestly i thought that i was bombing i thought it was the worst possible like reaction that they hated me and then it wasn't until I finished that they all came up to me individually and thanked me earnestly and said it was a, you know, a fantastic and informative talk and they're very grateful yeah. for it. Just exceptionally polite. But the truth of the matter is the Finns don't really go in for small talk yeah. and that's fair enough, but you don't actually have as much small talk as one might normally encounter upon a first meeting at a watch fair because of course we're all there because we love watches. And so the first hurdle has already been leaped over and um, they got into it. I mean, yeah, they're great. They're a great bunch. And I was just really impressed, you know, because every watch brand, especially brands like Sherpa 
and Arcanaut, for whom yeah. I work most of the time, have to be so careful about where they spend their money when it comes to advertising a brand and getting out there into the world and meeting people. And putting your money into an event, it can be a hit or it can be a miss. And having that kind of engaged audience that not only was interested, but understood everything that I fed back to them was wonderful. It made me feel like that's the smartest investment we've made all year. How does that feel for you? Because I guess Sherpa is relatively new back on the scene and certainly new in this current guise. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the brand, your background before that, and what it's like you know, managing a, a new formed company? Wow, the complex uh, bunch of questions. But basically, I'm a I'm a watch lover. Not not for so long. I would guess like 2010, 2011. I I stumbled upon the old Anika watches uh, while looking for a watch for my wife, and I bought at actually on eBay back then, still a viable viable um, platform for for buying watches. I bought an, I bought a very small. Lady dive watch with internal dive bezel from any car, maybe around 29 millimeters in size, so tiny. And then started venturing into vintage watches because I just discovered them more or less and started buying several watches, mostly underdog brands, which I tend to do prefer. So, um, and then I bought several um, any car models and well, after a while of collecting also whatever, pullover Acutron uh, um, watches of the past uh, with the tuning fork movements and then, you know, some other odd things, I started wondering why these really nice Enica Sherpa models just disappeared and nobody took them up again. Just to find out that in 88, Enica went bankrupt. The same goes, by the way, for the best and biggest case maker in the watch industry, EPSA or Alvin Piquet, who made the cases for Enica and for many others too. Uh, so they went both bankrupt in 88 or 89 and Enica brand or trademark rights were bought by a Hong Kong Chinese um, holding, Huaming Hong Holding. So I looked what they are doing at the moment, but they do not take up any of the history of the past no none of the models especially not the Sherpa series was really brought back to the market and I thought well that's I wouldn't say sorely needed but they are so great and timeless in design that I thought they should be back on the market so I wrote a very nice letter to them I think that was the end of 2018 when I thought I may do something new in my life um, and a friend of mine posted it in Hong Kong uh, with a receipt, and we could you could see that they received the letter, but they never responded. So that was that was at at that time the end. I thought I was oh quite a nice idea, but well then I can't do it. I'm an engineer by by um, you know by study, so I'm, I studied mechanical engineering. I work in the uh, automotive industry, mostly plastics for automotive. So. A lot of structural parts in cars, very big parts usually. And we advise, I mean, I advise as a more or less like technical sales guy, you know, companies, what kind of materials to choose for what application, etc. So I'm not in the watch industry, so I didn't really see a chance and I didn't intend to, to found my own company. 
But then a friend of mine, he's a business consultant. He always tells other people what to do. <laughs> he told me, oh, Martin, then you have to do it yourself. And I thought, oh, I mean, you're crazy. You know, I'm an engineer, but I, I can't build watches. and I didn't have experience. But it just stayed in the back of my mind all the time. And then I started researching and I found out, okay, any car as a brand is gone, registered. But I found out Sherpa, the sub-brand of any car, where most of the best watches of any car were actually done under the sub-brand, uh, was available. So I registered that in, in, in Europe, in the EU, and started thinking and tinkering more what I could do and how I could do it. And then friends of mine and my, myself, we went to Switzerland for a small watch trip, watch tour. A friend of mine organized that and he had some contacts to Fortis. So uh, we visited Fortis at the time when Jupp, the new owner, just took over. A really nice guy. I think you know him, right? One of my best friends, yeah. Ah, he's a super nice guy. And uh, there was, you know, he just, I don't know how many months he just took over, but we were there and we were led around the company very transparently, very friendly, open super nice discussions and i found out well that's a very small company i counted the people at that time and i thought wow i thought watch companies were a lot bigger and if those guys can do uh, fortress maybe i have a chance and i found out by through them that there are even possibilities like private label companies i mean i i, mm. I was a complete outsider so i didn't know so after that visit, I was really inspired, and I, I always tell uh, tell tell Yup every time I meet him that <laughs> this really inspired me, and we still have contact, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, so that's that was one point, and then later at that tour, we went to Kaributilanen's um, villa. At that time, not the new one he has, but a smaller one. We were also led around the company for two hours or so. And I, yeah, the, these things I picked up and thought, wow, um, it is a possibility. And right from the very beginning, you were obviously aware that the most important thing in watchmaking, if you're going to make it, especially as an outsider with very little behind the curtain experience of the industry, is that relationships are the most important thing. And thanks to the transparency and the friendship shown to you by Yup and by Kari, you were able to get that spark of inspiration i thought you know what maybe i can do this as well yeah it is i didn't see it like that but maybe my my way of doing things is like this also i mean uh, i mean now i found out of course i mean as you completely right it's it's all it's a lot about relationships knowing the right people getting references so in a way everything just came together for example i i visited kari wutilan's uh, workshop and in the downstairs compartment, they had the Giosch machines, yeah? One year later, I was at the watch time Düsseldorf, and I saw um, Benzinger. Yeah, Benzinger is uh, also a specialist for Giosch, and he had the same machine, and I started talking to him, because I thought, I said, I told him, yeah, I, I saw that machine with Kari Wittelein, and, and he said, ah, yeah, 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 maybe, maybe I sold one to him, because uh, Benzinger, Benzinger picked up all the old machines that were disposed of in Pforzheim when Giersch was not in trend anymore. So oh, wow, he's a really—I mean—he's also another really great guy, worth doing a show with, I would guess. And and so well, so then that was it. So I met him because I met Kari Wutilain and saw the machine. 
Then Bensinger told me, when I told him that I want to do something with watches and I needed some case maker, he said, ah, I've got somebody here. So he introduced to me to Mr. Koch. Mr. Koch um, has the company RP uh, Wurngehäuse and also a second company, um, RM Lifestyle. Uh, and he's doing with the RP um, company all the cases for um, Glasshütte Original, very high quality cases, nice. and some other comp companies too. So I met Mr. Koch. So, I mean, that was always like this, like a chain of events. So then Mr. Koch told me, yeah, I can't do the whole thing. So you need a designer and then we can talk again. So I researched and how could support me with design, yeah, et cetera. So, so it basically, as you said, was a chain of events. I met one guy and he referenced me to another one. And then it was a buildup of relationships. And this journey began in 2018. Uh, I would guess the journey began in 2019. So 2018 was the time when I thought about it, when I wrote to uh, the, the Hong Kong holding. But when I started thinking in more detail was 2019. And the first idea was actually to uh, have a private label company do everything for me because I have a day job. And I thought, I can't, I can't do the whole thing. You know, I need help. But you moved away from that when you made the connections that you needed. No, no, I moved away from that when I researched all the details about the old watches. So, how oh, I see. I, I researched about the Enica Sherpa models. I, th I thought, why? I mean, they have two crowns, they have the internal turning bezel, um, they have a special bayonet closing system. Um, so, I researched and I found out it's not standard tech. So, they had a compressor system case back, a special one. And, and I also found out that the crowns are very special. Um, they were non-screw. They did have no. They didn't have normal gaskets, like mm -hmm. rubber gaskets. Some of the crowns are still watertight after sixty years. Good grief! So, um, so I thought it's something special, and I also found out that the private label companies cannot help me there. They have okay. They have um, even when they are really good, they have um, their own, let's say, standard catalog of many things. So I I also thought it would be better if I have everything in my hand and do it. Yeah, well, it certainly is better, but I mean, it's a massive undertaking. There's a reason why those private label companies have such success with their stock catalogs as they are, because most brands, well, when they understand the challenge of what perhaps they've set out to do, most of them shy away from it because it's a daunting, daunting hill to climb. But, uh, given the name of the brand, there isn't a better, <laughs> isn't a better brand yeah. made for climbing hills. So. Um, there were many hills on the way, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. But look, look, you mentioned one very, very key word here, and it's something that I think you should spend as long as you need to to fully explain it on so our audience understands it. You called this watch a compressor. Yeah. Uh, the word compressor is used very often in the industry almost as a design corollary to, to describe a watch with two crowns, one at two and one at four, because it was quite often the case that true compressors would have this crown formation, but a true compressor yeah. actually has nothing to do with the crown formation right. or to do with the case construction. So go on, give us your expert insight into what a compressor watch actually is. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you you know more than 99% of people about that, <laughs> so, which is quite interesting. I mean, for me also, I mean, I started like that. Basically, a compressor watch is a watch that has a system which tightens the seals, the gaskets, by using the water pressure. So the water pressure will tighten the seals 
when diving down. And the, this applies to the crowns and to the case back. But it doesn't have to do anything with two crowns internal turning bezel. That's an, another addition. Um, so basically, um, it started like this. EPSA faced the challenge in the 1950s. It goes back to the 1950s. Um, that at that time, the gasket technology was very fragile. Uh, some used some, uh, what is, different materials were used. A lot of experimentations were done. Uh, people were not very happy in the 1950s with the gaskets uh, because they tended to fade away. So uh, many materials out of the plastic and rubber um, family at that time would fade away or wither away under pressure. So if you if you turn uh, and close um, the case back, a screw, screw down case back to uh, according to the pressure you need for 200 meters, uh, many gaskets at that time would uh, uh, you know uh, be pressed in more or less after a while, which would mean that the pressure on the gasket, which is necessary to to be watertight, would fade away. And in a fading away pressure on the gasket would mean there's quite a danger that, let's say, after two, three, four, five, six months, um, water could intrude. So, uh, and th this is why one of the reasons I brought back this system, because the idea was so ingenious. So, basically, EPSA said, or the, the head of EPSA actually was a uh, family, which was quite innov innovative. They wrote about 200, 220 patents just for cases and related technology. He said, oh, why do we have the pressure on the gasket all the time? Because the pressure on the gasket all the time means problems on the long run. We only need the pressure when we're actually diving. So the compressor case back um, was constructed such that it would not put pressure on the gasket all the time. But when you dive down, the water would press in the case back further into the case, ensuring that the pressure on the gasket would rise proportionally with rising water pressure. And that was basically what was called compressor. They had different, I think, four or five different designs. One was a very simple snap snap fit case back. Then they had a bayonet compressor, which was only used for any car, and which I recreated in a better way. And then they had, which is probably the most famous, the super compressor, which was a screw-in case back but it was the the pressure on the gasket was controlled by a spring and then they had a very special system called compressor 2 which was actually the first case for uh, the Hoya Monaco many people don't know but uh, it was probably the first really watertight square squarish um, case which was also done by EPSA and they have a for the case back uh, etc. For the whole case, they have a pattern on this. Well, I'm not surprised because one of the craziest things about the moniker when it comes to securing a decent water resistance is that square crystal and the square gasket that goes yeah. alongside it. So, EPSA really did have the inside track when it came to gasket technology. That's yeah. amazing. You know, um, funny thing to raise on the subject of water resistance because, of course, there are many brands, in fact, most, that have at least some water resistance about their watches, we should hope. And there are many that hang their hat on being diving brands or tool watches or adventure watches or even field watches that require a decent water resistance to be used safely in the wild. But there are very few people I know who I would regard as an expert on this subject. And one of the funny things 
I've noticed throughout my career and having people ask me questions about it many, many times is that people tend to place the importance of certain components far higher than they need to be placed in the hierarchy of water resistance when it comes down to what actually matters. So my friends, they say to me, oh, why is a Nomos Metro only water resistant to like 50 meters? Why can't now in the modern world, they make a watch that is just water resistant to a thousand meters regardless? What's wrong with this gasket technology? And I said, well, thing is, it isn't always about just the gaskets. A lot of watchmaking, in fact, everything about watchmaking is about the interaction of components and the interaction of those components with their surrounding environments. And so there's nothing wrong with the gaskets in a NOMOS. The problem oh. is the thinness of the case and the size yes. of the case. Yes. And the fact that like the further down you go in water, and this is perfectly expressed by the concept of a compressor, the more the external pressure is going to weigh on that watch. Now, the reason why an Omega Ploprof is built like a tank is not necessarily so it can have gaskets four times thicker than the average watch. It does have big gaskets, but the early Ploprofs had a closed case back. The modern ones have an open case back, and they haven't lost any water resistance because of that, because the gasket technology is, is there. But the real key thing is the fact that that housing is so strong, it can resist the environment around it. It's why dive watches are massive. And so- right. When you look at the gaskets in a dress watch, nothing wrong with them from daily wear. And even a dive watch, even a watch built to survive a thousand meters is probably more likely to leak in the first 30 centimeters of submersion than it is beyond that until it reaches its limit. And your endeavor with Sherpa and the fact that you have so genuinely brought back a technology that many people reference and many people feed off because they like the aesthetic that is commonly, although erroneously associated with it. To bring to life a product that actually does what the original did and to be the standard bearer for that now is absolutely fascinating. I guess you take that role quite seriously. Yeah, I thought, I mean, basically, I thought if I bring back these watches, I want to bring them uh, in the intended form. So they look like compressor watches. And in my opinion, they should be compressor watches. So basically, I took the legacy, legacy of. Um, any car and the legacy of EPSA and and wanted to bring both of them because both companies mean something for me. I They touched me in the way they operated. I thought both of them were in both, in, in each case, quite brilliant and had very special things among them. And so, yes, I researched. I found out it's a special case back system and the, the crowns are even more special because actually there are now two companies doing... Um, are supposedly doing compressor design case backs again, uh, which was first shocking to me because I was in the middle of my development. And then, um, which was it? Christopher Ward brought out a model um, inspired by old compressor watches, and they have this case back, which is claimed to be uh, a super compressor case back. And then also another German brand, uh, Circular, came out with a concept. Um, Watches of very different price point and design, no, no, of course. But then I thought, oh shit! I mean, wh what am I doing? You know, why, I, why am I continuing? But then I found out basically that they're not doing the crowns, which is then lacking one component, I would say, of a real compressor watch. And um, yeah, so the crowns were actually something that was the most challenging because I had to find out how they were made, and uh, Epsa still had 
I mean, they have 200 patterns. I researched them all online. And I, I uh, looked at the drawings. I'm an engineer, luckily, so I can read drawings and patterns. I've, I've written many patterns in my life myself, so I, I know how they work. So basically, you protect something that you invented, but you, you tell enough to get it patented and protected, but you don't tell so much that people can actually do it. Yeah, that's, that's basically how patterns work. And the pattern itself didn't tell me enough. So I read a book about uh, EPSA. There's actually one book where EPSA is, is mentioned, um, of course, written in French, which was a challenge for me because I only have my poor school French. And it, within the book, there were some references to archives in Switzerland. So actually, I went on a tour to, to research, um, look, uh, meet some suppliers, etc. So I, I went to a special archive in Switzerland, and in that archive, there was the, I would say, the personal... A personal archive by the technical head of EPSA. And uh, even there, there were not so many things to be read how these components work. But I was very lucky. His daughter had to spend time working in the company, I think maybe from school or maybe from university. And about that time within the company, she had, poor thing, I mean, <laughs> she had to write a report on, on the type, typewriter with drawings made by hand. So it must have been a huge effort to do that. And within that report, she actually described this crown, how it worked, uh, described some details about the manufacturing. And so I knew after that how things were done. So yes, I took it very seriously. And then I found a drawing, a component drawing of that, with the name of the manufacturer of the crown back then. And I researched on Google and I found the company still in operation today. I was like, really, it was like a celebration. I thought, wow, I don't have to do it myself so I can, you know, call them. I called them, of course, only in French because in the Francophone Swiss, even if they can speak German really well, they won't talk to you in German. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite proud when they talk French. And it's okay. Um so I called them, I told them drawing number such and such, do you still have the, can you make the crown? And they said, yeah, no problem, give us the drawing number, we will go to the archive. We meet in two weeks. So I drove down to Geneva, I met them, really nice guys, meeting room, three people, five drawings on the table. And I, before I could start asking some questions, which I really had, they asked me, uh, Mr. Tucker, before we go on, could you tell us what this is? And I thought... Come on, I mean, uh, that's the, the wrong dream, you know. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm here to ask questions, yeah. It's, the, it's, not, it's the other way around. But it, apparently, they lost all knowledge after several uh, decades. They didn't even know what this was, how it worked. Okay. Um, maybe they were not to blame, to be honest, because sometimes, um, because the technology was developed by EPSA, it could have been that the crown maker was just making them build to print. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, this happens also in the automotive industry. Sometimes people build things just as it is in the drawing, and they don't know what it is. Right, right. Well, to be honest, that sort of is a microcosmic example of the thing that I'm most scared of with the future of, well, civilization, I suppose. The, <laughs> True. You know what I mean? Like, you know, especially with AI on the rise, like there is oh, yes. going to be a lot of things that we can do by pressing the button, but there'll be fewer and fewer people around that actually understand how those things work. And to be quite frank, I regard myself as very fortunate for having found 
watchmaking at the age I did and fallen in love with it because I feel like it's one of those more resilient bastions of artisanal craft that will remain a little longer than many other occupations and industries. In fact, I read an article the other day about the three areas of occupation that would be the last to be overtaken by AI. And I think watchmaking kind of fulfilled all three. It was like an industry that requires true inventive and innovative design. It required some artisanal handcraft and it relied upon human interaction. So yeah, those three things I remembered from the article, all three, I thought, wow, this is watchmaking. So thank goodness, even if the AI technology increases apace in the next couple of years, we're actually going to have a full on episode dedicated to AI in watchmaking in the next couple of weeks. It might come out before this episode does. Oh, wow. You you should go and listen to it because we have some very, very strong opinions in the real-time network, which just so you and so your listeners, your existing brand followers know, we have a WhatsApp group, and you're welcome to join if you like, Martin, uh, where we have all sorts of people, uh, all our listeners, but from all different strata of the industry, we've got designers, creative directors, brand heads, collectors, watchmakers, master watchmakers, and just passing watch fans. And we have an ongoing discussion off air about what topics we should cover and what we should talk about and what people think of X, Y, Z. And so uh, you should join in and you should listen to this AI episode because it, got, it was raised the other day by Miles, one of our members in the group, and the conversation blew up. It was insane because there's a lot of strong feelings about what's okay and what's not. But I have to say, I think you would be definitely a champion for traditionalists in the group because you are doing things the right way and you're bringing back a a technology and improving it in some ways you did mention that you improved certain aspects of the system so give us a detailed insight into what you mean by that how did you identify something that could be made better okay so basically i i first found out how to do it and how the components were you know composed of um basically we we ended up with that conversation in the crown maker who didn't know how to do it anymore they didn't have any tools anymore and i did that was just in 2019 i think maybe even 2019 20 sometimes um when i started that in detail and they didn't want to continue they didn't want to to follow up with that project they didn't want to bring out that kind of a crown again because they thought when well, only crazy guys like me would like to have it so why do it um but they were incredibly kind and supportive in the way that i got all the component drawings from the 1950s from them which was is amazing so i got the component drawings i by that by that time i knew how it would work and then i started to sources with another crown maker but they gave, gave me crazy uh, offer, which was more like a offer that they didn't want to do because it was so crazy, uh, really expensive. Um, and by that time, I um, I had a designer, I mean, design uh, industrial designer doing the you know aesthetic design of the watch, and he introduced me to Cyrano uh, Devonte. Um, he's he's got an engineering office together with a colleague, um, Dominic Busa. Uh, and both of them, they have the watch brand Oscillon. I don't know, maybe you know it. It's it's a brand where they do everything without computers. Yeah. So he's a guy who knows how to do things. And he went through with me through the design of the crowns. And he told me, ah, we are doing a lot of, he, they did a lot of engineering for Urberg. And he said, at Urberg, we're doing new things every day. 
and why don't you do the crowns yourself? So, well, and in, so to make a long story short, I ended up doing the crowns. So we basically took the old design and adapted it slightly for manufacturing reasons. Uh, we did some updates in materials. For example, there's a spring inside the, of the crown. It used to be glucine. Uh, glucine is a material which is not favorite anymore for anything that could be in contact with skin. Uh, because I think beryllium is inside, which is not so nice. Um, nowadays, you have springs out of uh, stainless steel. Then there is the, the gasket, which is actually some kind of cylindric system, uh, which is put over the tube. And if water pressure is coming, it will press this gasket onto the tube, making it, in a way, infinitesimal. Uh, waterproof because the more water pressure the tighter it gets but I, I i would guess there's some kind of limit so this material was back then some special plastic and i'm in the plastic industry so i was looking for a let's say more modern material which i then also found and introduced um so yes i would say in in a way we adapted slightly the design and we choose we chose more modern materials which at that time were not available very good i mean that's a smart thing to do just uh Slight evolutions rather revolutions. Yeah, um, I mean, as Alan likes to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't have a huge department for research and development, so I, <laughs> I had to look for the most optimal way of doing it. So we didn't change too much, and and thought then the design would work as intended as it used mm -hmm. to. Um, but we didn't just change everything. So, um, yeah, it, it was quite interesting. Um. The, the case back we also changed in that way that the, the any car system uh, or the, the, the bayonet used for any car could be introduced in any kind of orientation into the uh, watch case. And then uh, you would turn a bit and uh, yeah, the orientation of the case back would be different depending on who would introduce it into the case. So okay. we made some kind of foolproof system so the case back can be only introduced into the case in one orientation. Then you can only turn in one direction, and uh, it's like a camera, like a camera lens, more or less. Okay, so I think we talked about this at the fair as well, and I said it sounds, and I think our listeners will know what I mean by when I say this. It sounds like the NIAD system from Omega. Yeah, it's interesting to that you say that. Uh, I recently also found out. I, um, I, um, I mean, I did a lot of research on patents also because I mean we were doing. Um, basically a new closure system and we wanted to to see that we do not cross any patents by big companies and then uh, we we while researching through i think 2000 patents where during lockdown we had an online session with the patent office of bern in switzerland and we went through everything that sounds absolutely scintillating yeah what a great way to spend an afternoon <laughs> one liter of coffee and uh crazy <laughs> Um, but uh, Dominic Buzer and Cyrano Devante, me and one officer of the patent office, we went through that. And uh, we also looked at that patent of, of um, Omega because they brought back the, uh, what do you call it, NIAD, right? Yeah. NIAD, yeah. NIAD system, which is uh, some kind of bayonet system. And interestingly enough, at the old NIAD system, they only also had crowns, which were in, in a way compressor crowns. Also very interesting. Hmm. Uh, a different compressor design than my the, the one I revived, uh, but, well, quite interesting to see what was out there. I mean, the, 
1950s, 60s, I think were very innovative and uh, people should not, you know, put them off like uh, old tech, blah, blah. No, no. In the 1950s, 60s, people did crazy things and I, 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 I'm in deep awe of, of what, for example, EPSA did at that time. Yeah? I have to be honest. So when you say they just had crunch, I mean, they just had push down crunch. They didn't have screw down crunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Is it just a coincidence then that the NIAD system was paired with that? Because, I mean, I guess the original NIAD wasn't a compressor, was it? Oh, I think the, the original NIAD was not. But at that time, there were different ideas how to do crowns. And one of them was this special system um, used by Omega. But Omega also used EPSA cases in many uh, in many models. Uh, but I mm-hmm. think they never used compressor crowns. From okay. EPSA, yeah. So yeah, th- th- yeah. I, d- I did a technical update in that sense, and of course, I'm an engineer, and I think I was quite confident this would work. But uh, I mean, everything can go wrong. So after the first tests done by the case maker, which has all the machines you need for waterproof testing, and uh, it fulfilled 200 meters, which means 25 bars in water. The uh, technical development guy of the case maker told me, "Ah, Mr. Klocker, to be honest, I've done 900 cases for watches in my life in in the past decades. I've I've never seen anything that we did for you, and I would never have bet a penny that this would work. (laughs) How interesting. Because I was going to ask you, I'm very, very curious. On the dial, it says Sherpa. Mm-hmm. Ultra dive automatic. It doesn't have a depth rating, although it's very clearly stated on the website, 20 bar of water yep. pressure. But we all know that every watch that bears whatever rating has not just been tested or has not just been constructed to meet that criteria. It can generally go much further. Have you tested these watches to absolute failure? I haven't, to be honest. Should. I mean, you should. Yeah. I mean, f- first, first things first. So basically, if you have some kind of pressure rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, pressure rating. You need to test, of course. But if you have meter rating on it, like 200 meters, then it means that you have to have a certification to the diving watch null, which is ISO 6425. And to have to test according to that. I have tested them and certified them according to ISO 6425. Not all the sub uh, tests. We only did. I mean, only in what do you call it, brackets or in law. Yeah. So we we did the testing for the depth rating. So they are tested for twenty five bars in water, mm-hmm. which is uh, one hour. Actually, we test to two hours in two hundred meters and two hundred fifty meters more or less, like twenty five bars. And then you have a condensation test. So afterwards, you take the watch out. They are on the heating plate, and after the heating plate, you put a very cold a wet sponge on top and see if there's any kind of condensation which would indicate that there's some kind of slight leak in the watch. So uh, we do certify, um, but so far I've never tested to failure. Um, maybe I should do it once. I would guess uh, the, the glass would fail first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose it might. But I mean, it's a fascinating thing to test. You know, it, I know like no watchmaker likes to see their watches explode, but it's... Um, fun for the rest of us and see exactly how deep a watch of this construction could go because i have to say and i'll say this with all honesty to the listeners i've held thousands of watches in my life as you know and 
worked on a great many of them and I've always had a very large soft spot for dive watches and the manufacturing in the case and the dial, the print in, the loom, the hands, everything on this watch is exceptional. Its retail price is 5,900 euros, including 19% VAT, which might seem high to some people that were expecting a, a new brand back on the scene to come in at a very aggressive price. But I say this, it's worth it because the machining is so exceptional. It feels so indestructible. I reckon it could go well, I reckon it could go beyond 500 easily. I think it could really surprise us. I think it could get to six. And I'd love, love, love to see where it finally gave up the ghost. Yeah. And blew. So interesting. I, I would say, so the crowns, I'm I'm sure the crowns would withstand 500 meters, no problem, because the design is so special. The glass, I'm not so sure. The glass, maybe my gut feeling would say maybe 300 meters. The case bag also at some stage would deform. We were speaking about thickness, etc. before, yeah? yeah? Yeah. So I'm not sure how far it would go. Maybe I take this as an uh, inspiration and I will ask. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would like to do two things. One would be a complete watch. And one thing I would really love to test is how far the crown system could go. My mm -hmm. gut feeling would say the crown system goes as far as the tube would go and the tube will collapse at one stage, but I don't know when. Um, yeah, um, I didn't have, let's say the time and the budget yet to, to do that, but yeah, I will, I will take the, I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So let's talk about some of the very, uh, specific aesthetic details of these watches, because I was always a fan of the Eneka Sherpa as well, but you've taken that concept and just improved it many fold in so many ways. I mean, you've retained one of my favorite little quirks from some of the original models and that's the lollipop hand that's on the stainless steel model and you've got the oh, great. orange of the double lollipop yeah if anyone's not seen this it's not a, just a regular lollipop it's a teeny tiny lollipop and then a slightly bigger lollipop halfway along the second hand it's a lovely little visual tick i absolutely adore it and then you've got the orange the all orange much more sporty style hand on the black model and the black model where the steel case is polished the black is matte blasted and looks absolutely beautiful very stealthy but the interesting thing about this orange is that it's luminous isn't it yeah so in a way uh, i mean i was so passionate and in love with these old watches i i looked at every part i mean basically i mean people would think ah it's you have an existing watch you just take it and redo it it's so simple blah blah and that's it you know no, because, I mean, we didn't have the tools anymore. So basically, we had to do a new design anyway. Of course, you could do it the same way it used to be. But in many areas, um, I realized people would expect if you do a real... I mean, the first decision after knowing that most of the supply chain of many cheaper brands is based in Asia, uh, that I didn't want to do it, would mean in the end that the price of the watches were going to be quite high. So all of my supply chain is in Germany and in Switzerland, which is different to many brands, especially all the small brands coming out with watches around, I don't know, 1,500 to 3,000 euros, I would guess, you know. So I knew I would be in the pricing quite high because of my supply chain. And then I thought, okay, I cannot do the plexiglass again, yeah, because people would expect to be better. So I looked at how to do a very good box glass uh, uh, imitation, I would say, of a very domed plexi. Uh, I found Sebal as a very good glassmaker in Switzerland, and we especially took care of uh, the fact that it looks like 
very similar to Plexi and it doesn't have this kind of milky shade around the parameter like you would see on an Omega Speedmaster Moon when it has the sapphire. Um, so we did a black metallization on the bottom to catch the reflections. We did a lot of things. And we did that to all the parts. So every part I looked at, what would Mr. Racine, the family of Enica, or Mr. Piqueret of EPSA, what would they do now to, to have a similar design but be up to date? And for example, the orange was another case. Back then, the uh, bezels and, and hands, they would feature day glow paint, but just paint in, in some of the watches. So then I looked uh, and talked in detail with RC Treetech, the company doing Superluminova, and we found that we could mix day glow and night glow, I mean Superluminova, and have this special Sherpa orange, which we actually developed together. Oh, they, they, they developed to me. And so now we have not only orange, but it's actually at nighttime also orange. So that's one of the details. You know, let's talk a little bit more or, well, just draw attention to once again, this black metallized ring beneath the outside edge of the crystal. Now, our listeners, although your explanation was perfectly sufficient when you know what it is, will probably not have heard about this before. And it's an interesting workaround to solve an aesthetic problem that very few brands, in fact, well, zero in my experience that I know of, have ever bothered to attack. And what it does is it makes the clarity of the dial so much greater it's very odd effect it sort of expands the dial slightly so you feel like the crystal is almost not there but from certain angles you can see it and you get a really interesting perspective on it how how, how many iterations of that did you have to go through and how did you really come up with that idea was it straight away moment of genius or did you have to try quite a lot of things to try and get rid of that milky edge that you spoke of basically i raised the issue i didn't want to have it so we changed we try to to make sure that the design helps doing this. But then I have to be very honest, uh, my supplier, Sebal, they work together with a uh, coating company doing the anti-reflex and they can also do metallization. And they said, we've seen this and this before, you might try this. So basically it was their suggestion, which I'm very thankful for. It's also a very good, very good glassmaker. They, they make the whole raw sapphire also in Switzerland and all the other process steps also. Yeah, a small family-led company. I, I love that. Um, so basically, it didn't take us a lot of iterations, maybe one or two. That was one of the least problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's like that, you know. And in the end, the look is quite special because you have the... Actually, the, the black metallization is... A part of the glass. It is a, a very little, a very thin layer on the glass on the bottom, um, and it has a special effect. People have to see it. It's if you look from the glass from the top, it looks like like a deep piano black varnish mm. in a way. Yeah, mm. so it's quite nice. Um, it's worth it to look at it. <laughs> it's really crisp. It's a lovely, lovely yeah. visual effect. Now, talking of visual effects, there's a lot of differences between stainless steel and the black model more than one might initially realize it's not just the seconds hand it's not even just the case coating is also the dial so it's all printed on the black one right it's a flatter uh, more geometric style and then on the 
stainless steel, you've got the applied and polished indices, which is much more uh, traditional, I would say. And then on the black one, you have even have a different internal bezel in terms of design. What are the models that inspired these two iterations specifically? Actually, they bear the, the, they bear the same name. So the original uh, was the Sherpa, Inika Sherpa OPS or OPS. And the, the original other one was the Inika Sherpa Ultradive, a watch which was, uh, by the way, worn by Alain Delon in two or three movies, at least two, and also in his private life. So you see some of the photos of Alain Delon uh, wearing this watch. So they, they were in existence with the same name, which were also not registered. So I registered the, the product names as trademarks. And I also made sure that all the old IP regarding design was long gone. It's, it's, long, it's gone more than 60, 70 years, so now it's free. And then we took very, we, we made the new watches, of course, uh, but they're very close to the originals. They're not exact copies, as you also mentioned, um, but they are very easily recognizable. So basically, we took the original design, which was, which I loved, so I tried to make it the best version of them today. Uh, well, I think you've achieved it. I'm not just saying that because I've been a fan of the Annika Sherpa for a long time. Now, quickly, the logo. We had a good laugh about this yeah. in Helsinki. When I, I asked if you had deliberately sort of taken the, the logo of Annika, which for anyone that doesn't know was basically a ringed planet, like Saturn. It looked like it's a Saturn, planet. yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Um, it looks the Sherpa logo because it's a like a crescent moon, really on its back with the circle up up top. It looks like you've just pulled the rings of Saturn down over the moon and uh, put it on the dial. And that, I thought it's it's a lovely, perhaps an intentional callback, but something that has this great symmetry to it. It really feels like this is the evolution of the Enica Sherpa, but to the name as well because this this goes beyond watchmaking. This goes to your your culture, your faith. You are Tibetan Buddhist. Correct. Right, right. So, so this this really touches a very deep and 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 uh, complex matter because I mean, looking at the logo. So I have I had Sherpa as a name, and it was clear for me that I wanted to do something. If I put Sherpa on the watch, it should have something to do with the Sherpas. So it should also have something in the watch. And for example, the logo is actually a, a, a Buddhist uh, symbol, a bit abstract, but. It's mainly it's it's a sun disk and the crescent moon put together, which means uh, that you try to use um, compassion and wisdom together to be as useful for as useful for the world as you can be. Now that's you know that's why uh, how this logo came about. So I really loved that idea with the logo, and when I put it on the watch and looked at it for the first time, I thought, wow, it's it's it looks like you said as if I took the two circles of the Saturn and sort of turned it around a bit and then had the new logo. But that was actually not intentional. So <laughs> it's, it's quite <laughs> funny. Um, so yeah, so there are two things that I, uh, I wanted to do. I wanted to give something back because the Sherpas, even today, they do all that crazy work for all the people who want to be on top of the world. And they usually do not get the full credit for that. And so... We support two projects in the Sherpa region. You can find them on, on the website, so I just mentioned them uh, shortly. There's one project which I support where they rebuild a school in the Sherpa region 
for little school children in the countryside, which is very poor. And uh, the the school the school was uh, destroyed in 2013 in the earthquake. And then I support another project in Namche Bazaar, which is the closest town to uh, Empress Base Camp. Mm -hmm. And um, they collect garbage, sort it, and pack it in little bags and give it to tourists to carry them back to the airport, which I think is a really nice, uh, not saving the world, but saving locally a grassroots uh, operation, which I really love. So uh, we also support that. But then I also thought, as you said, you know, I'm, I'm Tibetan Buddhist and the Sherpas are Tibetans living in Nepal, Tibetan Buddhists, and they're known to stay calm in every situation on the mountains. And they, they do that because they say mantras and they have this attitude of, of calmness. I thought, mm, I want to do something that is inside of the watch. So the Tibetans also use prayer wheels, sometimes small ones uh, that they have in their hand and rotate, especially old people or monks. Or sometimes around the, the big stupas in, in Nepal or in Tibet, they have these big wheels. When you pass by, you can just turn them and they turn the mantras and spread good vibration to the world. So I had this idea, but like the watch with a compressor watch, I, I look at the watch, it has to be a compressor watch and the real one. Uh, I wanted to make sure that this is just not a marketing feature, but it's real. So I asked high teacher of my lineage, Buddhist lineage, if, if this idea is crazy and just for marketing or if it's actually a, a real Buddhist traditional feature. And I showed him the plans and I want what I wanted to do. And he said, yeah, yeah, the idea is good and it's beneficial for people and it's also good for non-Buddhists, for everybody. But your plans are unfortunately wrong. We have to correct them. So he, <laughs> he made a new drawing. He told me which kind of wheels I could use. Then I went out, bought these wheels first just as spare parts. And then when I received them, it's the anchor wheel and the second wheel of the movement. I realized they're really, really tiny and uh, there's hardly any space to write on it. And I was pretty shocked, to be honest. But then I found uh, um, through a laser manufacturer, I found a laser engraver nearby in Solingen, which is the town of the best knives in Germany. Oh, yeah. That company engraves uh, high-quality knives. Uh, and so we started the first trials. First trials looked like, you know, a tattoo after yep. 60 years in Mallorca on the beach. Oh. Uh, completely blown out. <laughs> and then took us more or less a year and one new laser generation, which arrived during that, to make it really crisp. So if you look at my website, it's a mantra, Tibetan mantra written in 0 0.15 millimeter height. Right, you have to check this out because yeah. uh, this is really something you have to see with your own eyes. Um, Martin's website is SherpaWatches.com. That's S-H-E-R-P-A-W-A-T-C-H-E-S.com. And it's a beautiful website. You clearly know your stuff when it comes to that side of things. It works wonderfully. If you just scroll down the page or click straight away on the Mantramatic heading at the top, you will be taken to this section that shows you exactly the kind of scale that we're talking about when we're working with these components. There's an escape wheel lay next to the head of a match and they're even smaller than i remember and the seconds wheel is something else i mean the engraving yeah. on that is ridiculous so how many times does that rotate in a day oh then you ask testing something. You know. in the day uh, <laughs> i uh so i calculated that uh, they rotate 
basically they rotate more than 30 million mantras per year, which means roughly one per second. So per day we would have 60 times 60, which is 3,600. 3, and then by 24, okay, I don't know. I'm, I'm very bad in, in, in calculating my head. 86,400, just in case you're wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's per day, roughly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and that's something which is really nice to know. So uh, whatever do you do with your watch on the wrist, the wrist, uh, it will send out good vibrations to everybody. Uh, and it's the first spiritual uh, complication in a watch, I would say. <laughs> I've, never, I've never heard of it or seen it before. Um, but we wouldn't put it into the face of people. So it's, it's inside of the movement. It's a very nicely finished, gold-plated, highly decorated uh, movements based on Celita SW200 slash one uh, top regulated we take it apart half take out the wheels have them lasered put them back in regulate the movement and have our own rotor on it the rotor also says may all beings be happy and free also good wishes so the movement tries to use nearly every movement of itself to spread out good wishes well, that is a beautiful place to end our interview uh, with the industry's first, as far as we know, it's spiritual complication. <laughs> Martin, thanks for joining me, mate. It's a pleasure to meet you so recently and then to get on the airwaves together as soon as we've managed to. And I look forward to this episode coming out. If you have any questions for Martin or questions for future shows, please get in touch. You can do so via Instagram. I'm there at Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. My regular co-host can be found at Alon Ben Joseph, that's A L O N B E N J O S E P H, or you can contact us via email, either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. Alternatively, you can use our contact form on the website, which is www.therealtime.show. We'll be back next week with more watchmaking content, so please tune in then, like, follow, subscribe, share the podcast with all your friends, stay safe, and keep on ticking. <laughs>